0: Welcome to The Cue for Two, your podcast companion for learning all about your favorite theme park attractions. Whether listening at home or while waiting in the queue, we'll fill you in on all the information you need to get the most out of your ride experience. I'm your host, Ryan, and joining me as always is the Monstrous Matthew. Today, we're talking about the history and hidden secrets behind Monster Mansion at Six Flags Over Georgia. Matthew, how are you today?
1: I'm feeling monstrously hungry. Then you should have eaten before we started recording. That was a lie. I've already (laughs) eaten dinner. No, I'm doing fantastic. I'm really excited to talk about this ride. We teased it last episode, and it's one of my favorites. It's just a dumb little family ride that I absolutely adore, and I'm excited to learn more about it.
0: It's a dumb little family ride that is one of a kind. It is unique. There's not another ride like it out there. And it has a history of being other attractions that were also one-of-a-kind attractions. So it's got kind of a weird, unique, interesting history in terms of the attraction as it is, the attraction that it was, the crew that worked to build it. And I'm very excited to get into the details and talk about the history of this one-of-a-kind attraction with you, Matthew.
1: All right, you got me on the edge of my seat. Let's get started. Well, let's just jump right into the history.
0: So our history for this attraction is going to begin much before it was Monster Mansion. In fact, we are going to start our story before the park Six Flags Over Georgia even came to be. A little prelude to our story is going to begin with the opening of the first Six Flags Park, Six Flags Over Texas, in Arlington, Texas, opening on August 5th, 1961. Amidst the different thrill rides and other opening day attractions for this unique park, there was a kid-friendly boat ride called Spelunker's Cave that opened a few seasons after the park's opening in 1964, just three short seasons after open, This ride featured a number of strange, elfish, alien-looking beings known as Spelunkers, that were very, very simple statuettes and animatronics that ended up being a huge hit among park attendees. So this was kind of a very simple, dark boat ride attraction outside of a Disney park that got a little local following and was pretty unique for Six Flags over Texas on opening. Six Flags has expanded immensely from the opening of their first park. And when they were first looking at expanding the brand to a second park, the site was picked for Austell, Georgia, outside of Atlanta, for Six Flags Over Georgia being the second Six Flags Park to open on June 16, 1967. Now, when they were building this park and trying to recapture the magic of Six Flags Over Texas, an essential component was they wanted to include a similar family-friendly boat ride at this park and began looking for an appropriate theming for such an attraction. Spelunking and caves and these like weird little creatures, they didn't have anything to do with Georgia's history, and so they wanted to make an attraction that was similar, but incorporate it and make it special for the Georgia park. Now, when thinking about picking a theme that would work for this attraction, they wanted to theme it to one of the themed locations within the park. The original sections of both of these Six Flags parks in Texas and in Georgia were themed around the nations that had controlled each home state of the two parks throughout their histories, thus, the name Six Flags. Now, Matthew, we're going to put you on the spot. When you're thinking about Six Flags over Georgia, can you name all six flags that flew over Georgia?
1: I'm going to guess the U.S. That's one. I'm going to guess. England. England, that's two. Okay. I'm going to guess France. That's three. Spain. That's four. Um, Portugal. <clears throat> All right. And then the last one would be Georgia. So Georgia is one of them. Okay. So I'm missing one. You're missing
0: a big sixth outlier. And I'll give you a hint. This is the controversial flag that definitely no longer flies in the Six Flags parks.
1: Oh, don't tell me they flew the Confederate flag. It was indeed the Confederate
0: flag. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, nowadays there's, you know, big groan, oh gosh, there's a Confederate flag flying over the park. And of course, later in the park's history, they remedied that there is no longer a Confederate flag flying in any of the Six Flags parks. That being said, that unfortunate flag to fly over Georgia did include a theming for one section of the park that was themed to the Confederacy, and this would actually be the section of the park chosen to house the new boat dark ride. So not only is it unfortunate that that flag was flying, that they chose to theme an entire land in the theme park to the Confederacy, that of course nowadays that is not the case anymore and we can get into... A little bit more of the history of the theming there, but yeah, that's where that's where we're starting
1: our story. Here we go. Let's go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to zone in a little bit more to the theming of the first attraction, this boat ride attraction that existed on the spot of what would later become Monster Mansion, we need to understand the inspiration for the ride by taking a little trip through some relevant Georgia history. The first ride that would exist on park opening, the first boat ride there, would be called Tales from the Okefenokee. And when I say that name, Matthew, that should trigger a little light bulb above your head. Have we talked about that attraction before on
1: q for Two? Splash Mountain with Tom Hanks. <laughs> Splash Mountain. It's been so long. Yep, this was in our Splash Mountain episode.
0: I kind of gave a little teaser at the end that this was an attraction I wanted to bring up and kind of seed in everybody's heads because... Tales from the Oki Finoki and Splash Mountain actually share the same original intellectual property that the rides are based on. so Tales from the Oki Finoki was based on the Uncle Remus stories of a Joel Chandler Harris. These were a series of African folklore stories taken from several slaves on the plantation of Joseph Addison Turner, kind of a mentor to Joel Harris in the late 1980s. So after his death, Joel Chandler Harris has been accused of appropriation of African culture, and his role in what some had deemed as preserving the folklore has been very controversial, to say the least. There are multiple aspects of his writing as well that incorporate very racist stereotypes that are now recognized as not being historically accurate, and really just exactly what I said racist stereotypes. Despite all of these flaws in him essentially taking these tales and appropriating African culture, the tales that he recorded and modified did gain a lot of popularity over the years throughout Georgia and even through the United States, eventually catching the eye of a young Walt Disney that gets us to the point in Splash Mountain where they end up using that intellectual property as a source for that ride. Matthew, were these stories that outside of these attractions, had you ever heard of like the history of where they came from and kind of that background before?
1: Uh, No, I actually hadn't. And again, we talked about this a little bit on the, now that you're bringing it up, now that I remember, when we talked about the Splash Mountain is that, you know, I had never seen Song of the South. And so, obviously, those are all based on the same stories and everything. So, you know, I don't know if it's for better or for worse that I didn't have any of those in my memory bank other than what we've learned based on these rides.
0: Yeah, it's interesting historical context. And I think it's something that we don't often talk about where these tales come from and how they got to where the public is aware of them now. And I think it is important context to share to know. The background and know the terrible place and the terrible stereotypes that popularized these tales in America and really took them away from their origin and their cultural significance beforehand as well. And Matthew, you mentioned Song of the South from Disney, and it is important to kind of talk about that when you talk about the popularization of these tales with the release of that film. So There's animal characters that are utilized in the Uncle Remus tales, and those animal characters that you see are portrayed in the Disney film Song of the South, which you see represented in the rides Tales of the Finoki and Splash Mountain. Now, it is important to know Song of the South actually did premiere in Atlanta, Georgia on November 12, 1946. So it's another tie to Georgia history that that is where that film had premiered. And as we discussed in our Splash Mountain episode, that I'm not going to do a deep dive into it here, but just to mention and make sure that we talk about the historical significance is that not only were there problems with the film itself, but the circumstances surrounding the film were also very problematic. The film itself was chastised for racially insensitive stereotypes by both progressives and critics alike in later decades. Initially, though, it actually received general praise, especially in the Atlanta area. With Georgia continuing to practice racial segregation in the 1940s when the film had premiered, James Baskett, the actor who played the Uncle Remus character in the film, wasn't even allowed to attend the premiere in Atlanta. Which, if you don't know that history, I think it's important to know because obviously that's horrible. It really casts a light on the terrible things that were going on at this time and the problematic history of not just these stories, but how these stories were propagated through our history to get us to modern day. I did want to mention that James Baskett did retroactively receive an Honorary Academy Award in 1948 for his performance in the film. But such instances as those previously stated highlight the racism exhibited both on and off the screen for this film, and the Academy Award, honestly, in my opinion, of course, is too little, too late, and very much not enough. All that being said, for more information, we do talk about this topic a little bit more in our Splash Mountain episode, and we do absolutely encourage y'all to take a listen to that episode. And of course, do some independent research on your own, hear a little bit more about the historical context, and take that time to critically think about everything.
1: Now to the racist swamp ride.
0: Yeah. So now that we've kind of talked about the history of these tales in Georgia, they had been chosen by Six Flags at the time to be the focus of their southern theme park attraction within the Confederacy section of the park. When Tales from the Finoki, the ride, was crafted, Uncle Remus himself was not represented on the attraction, though they did include a rabbit, a fox, and a bear, as in the original stories. Some actually speculate that Six Flags may have not actually had the official rights to these characters. <laughs> they weren't named, you know, like what you see in Splash Mountain, Br'er Rabbit, Bear Fox, Br'er Bear. They were instead Mr. Rabbit, Mr. Fox, Mr. Bear, and they didn't have a lot of the specific context of the source material, so it's kind of speculated that Six Flags may have just gotten as close as they could without infringing on the copyright for those tales.
1: That feels like the most Six Flags thing that they could do.
0: It is quite a Six Flags move. You know, you got to use the intellectual property when you have it, as we keep saying, But I guess if you don't have the intellectual property, you gotta do what you can and make do. So the ride, Tales from the Finoki" was an opening day attraction at the park, utilizing these characters decades before the same characters would be used in the Disney parks in 1989. The characters on the ride were represented as relatively simple figures with very simple animation loops as animatronics. Now, when we talk about the opening day attraction, Tales from the Finoki, in its first operating season, little is actually known about the attraction, as it was completely redesigned for the 1968 season the following year. What I was able to find, we do know that the ride initially did not receive the same critical acclaim and popularity as Spelunker's Cave in Six Flags Over, Texas. While the music for the ride was generally praised, the attraction had pretty small figures in a relatively large, expansive show building with show scenes, and kind of that combination together just made the whole thing seem generally unimpressive. And we do have some video footage out there that y'all can look up of a little bit of info of that opening ride. The figures are very small. It's not your classic animatronic dark ride i will say that got it so after opening season to revamp this ride six flags partnered with two rising puppeteers sid and marty croft as the duo had already had multiple puppet theaters in both six flags parks in the redesign they took the characters in this ride they designed larger more colorful characters with more animated facial expressions And they also recorded new voiceover tracks, sound effects, and musical numbers while redesigning their show scenes. In addition to Mr. Rabbit, Mr. Fox, and Mr. Bear, as we discussed earlier, the attraction also included a Mrs. Rabbit, several rabbit children, some crows, a wide variety of singing carrots and singing watermelons, in addition to other animals such as a turtle, a raccoon, frogs, and owls. So they had a menagerie of different characters and
1: singing vegetables and fruit. I'm trying to wrap my brain around it, because it's already bad enough you got singing animals, and the animals, you know, they eat veggies. And so then for the vegetables to be looking at you, full-on singing, that's next-level creepy right there.
0: Yeah, so all the descriptions I just gave would make you think, you know, this is a very fun, colorful ride. Man, I think it's pretty creepy. You look at some of the faces of these rabbits and these singing carrots and everything. They're pretty creepy. With the caveat, the singing watermelons are actually kind of adorable. You should look them up. (laughs) They don't strike fear into my heart. They're, They're cute little fruits. And kind of with that in mind, while the animatronics were still very simple, had very simple motions by modern standards, the revamp was considered a much more beloved ride. To the point that they got pretty popular in the Six Flags parks while this was operating. They even had walk-around characters for the attraction in the parks. And the ride actually had several official brand sponsors, including Ajax and Domino Sugar. Interesting. They ran several
1: ads like including the characters from the attraction, which was interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. The walk-around characters, that's interesting because I know they still have walk-around characters now. We haven't really touched on that. But to think that they had walk-around characters from that ride? Hmm. It's kind of interesting. And
0: in case you were wondering, because I was certainly wondering, when I looked it up, I can confirm, yes, the walk-around characters were also very creepy. <laughs> so that, uh, you put a stamp on that mystery, that's solved. <laughs> now, of course, this ride doesn't exist anymore. So in talking about why we don't have Tales from the Oki Finoki, there are a lot of reasons. The attraction had several foibles and flaws. The relatively expansive attraction with several different show scenes was all crammed into a relatively small building, so when you have scenes stacked up one after the other, your show scene audio can often overlap during your experience of the boat moving between scenes, and that was a common complaint amongst guests. Since the ride was very slow-moving... We've talked about this with some other attractions, including some attractions at Disney, but theft ended up becoming a pretty big problem. Since you have a very slow-moving boat in a dimly lit building, you would have guests hopping off the ride, stealing different things from the set, plates off of the rabbit's table, clothes right off of the animatronics. Apparently that became a pretty big problem. There's even part of the show scene where the rabbits have little marionettes of Mr. Fox and Mr. Bear, and somebody stole the Mr. Bear marionette at one point as well. Stinking hooligans. The other thing that was a big problem, so you're dealing with a show building with all of these characters with clothing and fur on the animatronics in a building that gets really wet because it's a water boat ride. So a lot of the animatronics started to develop rotting, moldy fur in this damp environment, and they did go through some refurbishments of replacing some of the fur, but that was just a chronic issue with this attraction. So over time, after multiple technical failures, including, surprise, surprise, a singing carrot catching fire and burning an entire show scene, this ride was just faded for an overhaul. Tales from the Finoki lasted for 13 seasons at Six Flags Over Georgia, closing officially at the end of the 1980 season. And Matthew, I just said a bunch of stuff about Tales from the Finoki. It's not even our main focus of this episode. There is a lot of information I left out, but we just don't have time to cover everything. If any of our listeners are interested in learning more about Tales from the Finoki, including the actual story behind the different versions of this attraction, I highly encourage you to check out the fantastic documentary pieces by Defunct Land and Storybook Amusement over on YouTube. We're going to include the links to both of those documentary pieces in our description below. Highly encouraged. They are a great watch and a great history of these rides. All right, Matthew. Now that Tales from the Oki Finoki is closed. I said this episode was going to be on Monster Mansion. So obviously, that's got to be what replaced Tales from the Fanoki, right? Nope. It's got to be a
1: haunted, moss-covered, creepy, mushroom-covered, singing carrots. They just converted it to a horror ride,
0: right? They leaned really heavy into the singing carrots. It was all singing carrots. Just
1: mold <laughs> everywhere.
0: So it kind of was monster mansion technically the next attraction that this made way for is monster plantation oh gosh which has some differences from monster mansion but overall roughly the same attraction but we'll get into it once the decision was made to cut tales from the okie Fanoki in order to make way for a new boat ride attraction they actually leveled the entire show building leaving only the water track Apparently, within the ride, there were a couple of murals for some of the show scenes that were reportedly given to a local theater company. There's also some reports saying that some team members may have taken some of the characters from the ride before they were destroyed or trashed, though I couldn't find any proof of that. So it is very possible that the only pieces of this attraction that are still out there in the world somewhere are the pieces that were stolen during the ride's operation, which I find intriguing, and I don't know that anybody's come forward with any artifacts from this attraction.
1: Man, pays to be a cheater,
0: huh? I guess in this case, but uh, I don't know. Maybe people just took them, and they, I mean, nobody's coming forward with them now. There's no museums that I know of with any of this stuff, so they probably just got cast aside, too.
1: They didn't realize what they had, and they threw it
0: away. Some kids out there wearing Mr. Bear's jacket that his papa took from the ride. <laughs> Can you imagine? Jeez. So in developing a replacement ride, Six Flags Over Georgia production supervisor Dave Gengenbach, a former Disney project engineer for 13 years, decided to choose another former Walt Disney Imagineer, Gary Goddard, to design the ride. This would actually be the first attraction that Gary worked on after leaving Walt Disney Imagineering. A couple other notable things for Gary Goddard. He is responsible for the 2008 Glow in the Park Parade across multiple different Six Flags parks. He also worked on a couple of projects for another theme park that I have been to before, Hershey's Chocolate World in Pennsylvania. Another local plug for him, he did some work for the local Georgia Aquarium, specifically a 3D show called Depot's Undersea 3D Wonder Show that's no longer running. It closed in 2015 but that was active in Georgia, very close to Six Flags Over Georgia, for some time. He also reportedly worked on some universal attractions, including Jurassic Park The Ride, but it was a little bit more difficult to find that source, so that's a little bit more shaky. So he's got some interesting history in Georgia and outside. But enough of tangents about Gary Goddard. Focusing in on this attraction, the idea for the story of this new attraction actually came from Another former Walt Disney Imagineer, <laughs> Al Bertino, who worked on the ride.
1: Matthew, does the name Al Bertino ring a bell to you? Uh, Al Pacino is all I'm hearing every time you say that, so <laughs> nope, nothing. What about focusing on the first
0: name, Al? Do you know any Al in the Disney theme park?
1: Uh, big Al is an elephant. An elephant? Al. <laughs> Ow, 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 ow. Nope, you're stumping me. You said the name. He's not an elephant, though. Oh, I'm thinking of Big Al, the mascot for Alabama Crimson Tide football. Who are you talking about? So
0: I'm talking about Big Al as well, but it's definitely not a football mascot. (laughs) We're talking about a bear in the Country Bear Jamboree? We are, Matthew. So Albertino, in addition to his work on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and the Haunted Mansion, uh, did some work on the Country Bear Jamboree, and he himself, the person, was the inspiration for the design of Big Al. (laughs) That's so funny. Okay, that makes sense. So he was the one that came up with the idea for this ride. There's a famous quote from him that he was talking about how the idea came to him while playing with his granddaughter who was pretending to be a monster, and then he said it hit him that if little kids know what monsters are, they could make a monster ride for the whole family to enjoy. Which doesn't really describe how he came up with the idea for it to be a monster picnic on a plantation, but...
1: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he lived on a plantation, he had that Disney money, who knows. had all that former Disney Imagineer money.
0: So that's where the original idea came from. As the team got started rolling on making this production, another former animator for Disney, Phil Mendez, was actually the one who designed all 107 monsters for the Monster Plantation attraction. The ride was manufactured by Aero Development Company. The animatronic figures from the designs of Phil Mendez were built by AVG Productions. The monsters themselves were built from fiberglass and latex covered in costumes and fur and were programmed with a technology known as Theatronics. With more than 700 feet of wire connecting the monsters to the main computer, they were powered pneumatically rather than hydraulically, which was a big advancement because with hydraulics, you run the risk of the hydraulic fluid getting on the fur and the clothing and staining the figures. So that was a big maintenance help in this attraction. The attraction cost about a total of $3 million, to produce, and they built the entire attraction in nine months. Goodness. 107 monsters in nine months.
1: Wild. So that includes not only the building, that includes all the animatronics and everything. That includes the
0: building, the show scenes, the animatronics. Wow. Everything but the like water track that you go through, which is wild. That's a crazy amount of time to build this attraction. And Phil Mendes was actually quoted when he stepped into the attraction for the first time and saw all of the animatronics moving and everything coming together. He said it felt like stepping into his own imagination, seeing all of his creations coming off the page and into real life. That just must be a unique feeling that not many people get to experience, having their fictional universe in their head come to life before their very eyes.
1: Yeah, because obviously, you know, everyone has those things in your head that when you finish a project on something like that and be able to look at it and it's exactly how you want it to be is crazy. But to have this entire world, number one, that's a crazy imagination he's got. But (laughs) number two, like that's so cool to be able to look back and it's exactly or, you know, it might not be exact, but for it to be pretty darn close to everything that you imagined it would be. That's really cool.
0: For sure. And obviously, we're not going to be able to cover all 107 monsters on the podcast. We'll talk about a couple of the like main highlights. But man, if you're looking at some of these monsters, talk about creativity. There are some weird monsters on this ride. It is also worth mentioning the catchy theme song for Monster Plantation it was written by Dick Hamilton. And in the original version of the song, it was actually his daughter, son, niece, and wife that sang the final version of the song for the attraction. So everything came together. The new attraction opened as Monster Plantation for the 1981 season. The general story around the attraction was that a plantation was built in 1852 by a Colonel Beauregard Mad Dog Powell. After his death, the property was willed to his wife's second cousin, who was, quote, on the monster side of the family. Think about the implications of that who ended up opening the home to the monster community. Her granddaughter, Mizzy Scarlet, who we see in the ride, now maintains the property and open up the property for the monster picnic for humans to come and enjoy as well. So Matthew, who do you have on the monster side of the family?
1: Oh man, you're telling me I'm not on the monster (laughs) side of the family? Come on now. That's right, you are the monster side of the family.
0: (laughs) Be realistic. So when this ride opened, It was generally very well received and quickly started to become kind of colloquially known as a rite of passage for locals in the South visiting the theme park scene. We talked about how this attraction was originally located in the Confederacy section of the park. We did indeed. As time marched on, some problematic aspects of the attraction were scrutinized more closely. Including the plantation aspect of the title, which conjures up very specific imagery in a very specific section of history, as well as some straight up references to the Confederate States of America in the ride. Specifically, the cannon scene where they're firing a cannon at some of the monsters in the marsh. Some of the gunpowder barrels were originally labeled as armaments for the Confederacy which I didn't know before researching this ride. It's wild that that was there for as long as it was. Obviously, the section of the park is no longer known as the Confederate Area. Afterwards, it was previously known as Peachtree Square from 1980 to 2017. That was like a city park-themed area, including Acrophobia, the Dahlonega Mine Train, and the now-defunct Sky Buckets. But present day, after 2018, the location in the park is actually known as the Piedmont section, which is supposed to be themed after the Piedmont Park of Atlanta, which I just found out while researching this episode, because I've been to Piedmont Park, and uh, I don't feel like I'm in Piedmont Park when I'm in that (laughs) section of the park, but we'll give it to them, you know? The thing that I found was weird with this reshuffling and theming of that area to Piedmont, This is the only attraction that's in that section. The only other notable thing that the section of the park includes, aside from the gift shop, is uh, our old friendly macho nacho that we discuss in the Goliath section. But again, just the more we dive into the history of the themed areas of this park, the more confused I get as to why it's divided up the way it is.
1: Every time, I will not understand it. Disney's got it simple. And to see this, it's just, it confuses me every time we look into it. But hey, it is what it is. But for those aforementioned references
0: to the Confederacy, the ride was revamped and renovated in 2008, again by Gary Goddard, and reopened on May 4th, 2009 as Monster Mansion. We've talked in other episodes about the fun little opening ceremonies for attractions. This one was opened with a choir of elementary school children, each with a monster puppet that sang the iconic attraction theme. That's something that's out there if you want to go see that.
1: Oh my goodness. Are we going to find out that you were in that choir all along? (laughs) Is that what you've been leading up to? That's my origin story. It was that day that I said, I'm going to make a
0: theme park podcast and talk about my performance in this choir. (laughs) Overall, when the ride reopened, aside from cutting out the things that we mentioned before, This was overall largely the same ride as Monster Plantation. They did update the fur, costumes, and some mechanics on some of the animatronics. They did put in some new murals that were designed by Disney animation production designer Phil Philipson. They did introduce eight new characters to the cast of monsters, including Paparazzi and Nestor, who we'll discuss a little bit more in detail later, as well as a few water-spouting frogs that were added and some references to Six Flags' leadership on the tombstones before you reach the marsh. It is worth noting, there are a few monsters that were also removed during the refurbishment, with a total of five monster characters removed entirely during the entire run of this attraction, including two marsh birds that used to swoop down at the boats that were retired around 1984, a child monster trapped in a butterfly net, and two other monsters that used to sit in front of the country band. And the big change there were two animatronics that were repurposed for the renovation. There was a tennis playing monster that was turned into a gardener. And there was a pink pigeon that was sitting on top of a bust at the beginning of the picnic scene that we think was likely repurposed into the monster Nester at the start of the attraction, just based on their similar frames and that they were both pink looking birds but overall everything else was kept largely the same with no big changes matthew it was a long journey to get us to monster mansion but it's time for your favorite part of the episodes it's time for the official ride description of monster mansion spook me up this ride doesn't have seat belts but you're gonna want to buckle in because this one's a little bit long There's a party over at Monster Mansion, and everyone is invited. Usually, this is a VIP-only event for the wildest and weirdest of monsters, but this time, humans can come, too. Come inside for a darkly delectable boat ride through a whole mansion's worth of magical monstrosity. The 25,000 square foot spooktacular has been a Six Flags Over Georgia favorite for generations, but now... This resonance has been beautifully restored and redesigned for a whole new crew of monster lovers. You'll find state-of-the-art lighting and sound to chill you and thrill you. But the real stars of the show are the 107 living, breathing monsters. Every single creature has personality and a story, not to mention spectacular fur. Climb in your boat and drift into the flooded mansion, if you dare. Every body is getting ready for the picnic, but hopefully those tasty humans won't be the main course. You'll float through the bog, where dementedly devious creatures are crawling around every corner and even flying through the air. It's an entire world of extremely colorful and creative beasts, with faces you'll never forget. At the Monster Reunion, all the funny furry ones have come out to play. Whether tiny or giant, these monsters are having the time of their lives. A spirit made of smoke beckons you deeper, but don't go into the marsh. It's dark and scary in there. Fiery red eyes watch you from the dark, and you don't even want to know who's looking. It's the wildest picnic party in town.
1: Woo! Man, that is another doozy. And I want to call out... There was one specific part that talks about faces that you'll never forget. And I want you to look me in the eye and understand I have completely forgotten every single face of every (laughs) single monster on this route. So they immediately lost me with that description.
0: (laughs) So I will say I'm obviously biased because in doing the research for this episode, I've been staring these monsters in the eyes on several different videos and pages. I don't really remember if I remembered any of them before going through the research. But yeah, that's a a piece. Matthew, there was one part of that that I wanted to highlight and talk about for a minute. Smoke monster. Not the smoke monster. Darn. Did you notice how it talked about how the ride has been beautifully restored and redesigned for a whole new crew of monster lovers? Interesting. Hearing that description, you probably think, oh, well, that was the renovation from Monster Plantation to Monster Mansion. Right. I don't know about you. The last time I rode this ride was back in 2022, and it was looking a little bit rough. You can check out the videos on our YouTube channel. I did two videos during that season in the park. There's one where like the lights even came on in the marsh. There were some audio issues and some of the animatronics looking a little bit rough. So with that being said, early in 2023, the year of this podcast that we're recording, Six Flags actually announced a major ongoing refurbishment and upgrade planned for the 2023 operating season. They announced changes including an updated opening show scene, new monster costumes, restored animatronics, interactive features, and enhanced lighting, audio, and special effects. They said the refurbishment would be performed primarily in-house, though national-renowned mascot costume and puppet designer Doug Kincaid had been brought in to design and produce new costumes for the major monster characters. Doug actually being the man behind the famous Bud Light mascot Spuds McKenzie as well as having some experience with Jim Henson Productions in 1990, training at Disney's Hollywood Studios in the early development aspects when they were talking about making an entire land themed to the Muppets.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. And I'm glad that, you know, it's nice when they bring in experts because it definitely helps out. I'm curious, and I don't know if you're going into it more, when they say, I believe you said interactive sections? So I can't find out what they meant by interactive.
0: Okay. I think what they may be saying with that, when you go into the beginning of the attraction, some of the monsters that we mentioned earlier, Paparazzi and Nestor. So Paparazzi is a small green monster that serves as a photographer at the beginning of the attraction. And the camera is in the mouth of this large pink bird monster known as Nestor that were both added in the 2009 refurbishment. I think what they might be talking about with the interactive portion, so when you go into the ride, there's a big photo frame in the mansion itself that after you get your ride picture taken, it actually displays your ride picture in real time of you on the boat on the ride. Huh. I think that must be what they're talking about, because I can't see any other indication of another, quote, interactive feature.
1: Got it. Yeah, I didn't know if it was a voice activated or something now. I didn't know what they were adding to it. Imagine just, like, saying a snide comment and one of the monsters turns to you and is like, I heard that.
0: <laughs> I'm watching you.
1: You don't laugh at their jokes or anything. They, like, they make a little snide comment about tough crowd. <laughs> Everyone's a crit.
0: <laughs> it's funny, though. Since we're talking about this, obviously, we're pretty late into the park season. And there have been videos that have surfaced about changes to this attraction. There's a lot of changes made to the opening show scene. The entire interior of the mansion has been redesigned. New paint on the walls, different photos hung up. Paparazzi has a new costume. Mizzy Scarlet has an entire new costume. It's looking pretty sharp, and they've got a pretty good renovation going. So I think there are great changes on the horizon for this ride. And I'm looking forward to the opportunity to ride the revamped and refurbished Monster Mansion.
1: Heck yeah, we'll have to get a chance to get down there and ride it before the new renovation becomes the old. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: For all of our listeners out there, if you get a chance to go to the park and you see some of the renovations after this 2023 renovation season, hit us up in our comments and let us know what your favorite change of the attraction is. We'd love to hear it, see if y'all are kind of looking at the Nitty gritty details of the attraction. Matthew, real quick with talking about the nitty gritty details, there are a couple of fun facts I want to talk about closing us out of this episode. I mentioned that we couldn't talk about all the monster characters on this podcast. Most of the monster characters of the 107 on this ride actually have names although several are never mentioned in the ride or, interestingly enough, not even documented in the maintenance manual for the ride animatronics. Instead, the names were added, I think, retroactively and can be found on a variety of merchandise sold over the years, such as postcards and coloring books in the gift shop. I do want to just take a moment to highlight a couple of the main monsters that you're going to see in the attraction that are some of the most iconic faces. The first one, the Marshal in the attraction, a.k.a. Billy Bob Fritter, and his canine-like partner Fritter Bitter are the ones that welcome you to the attraction and warn you to stay out of the marsh. Billy Bob Fritter is also the character to appear most frequently in the attraction with a total of three appearances, including he and Fritter blasting the monsters in the marsh with a cannon. Now using ammunition that is totally not supplied by the Confederate States of America. Thank goodness. Good on you, Billy Bob. I'm glad you're getting your tons of gunpowder from a different supplier. Arguably the most iconic character in the attraction, Mizzie Scarlet, is the host of the picnic at the mansion, and she and her canine-like companion, Taddy Two, address guests at the beginning and end of the attraction. This animatronic is actually named after Scarlett O'Hara from the 1939 film Gone with the Wind. So if that little film reference went over your head before, now you know. The other arguably most iconic monster on the attraction, Busby, is a propeller hat-wearing child monster actually named after George's governor at the time of opening for the attraction, George Busby. This is also the iconic monster that you see on the sign for Monster Mansion. A couple other quick shout-outs I wanted to give. The band in the attraction is called the Lagoon Goon Band. Jazzy name. The Gengenbacher, a monster in the marsh was named after the production supervisor, Dave Gengenbach, that we discussed earlier. Oh, that's funny. And the last tribute I wanted to mention, we talked about one monster being converted from a tennis player to a gardener monster. This is kind of a big, bulky monster that you see on your right, moving out of one of the first show scenes. This monster is actually meant to be a tribute to Big Albertino, who unfortunately passed away in 1996 prior to the refurbishment. So when they did the refurbishment, converting him to a gardener, they kind of made the monster a little bit more in his image, which I think is a cool tribute. And I think it's also cool that both a monster in Monster Mansion and Big Owl of the Country Bear Jamboree share the same inspiration for their
1: design. Now, if you could ever get the chance to buy both animatronics and put them in the same place, man, what a museum.
0: That would be pretty cool. For now,
1: you're just going to have to
0: stick with having that fun little Q for two fact that you can bring out at parties, question mark? Q for two is
1: a, a big hit at parties. Maybe someday. The last
0: two little facts I wanted to tell you about, Matthew, we've talked about awards on this season for Six Flags Attractions. This attraction's peak was its ranking as fifth in the Amusement Today's Golden Ticket Awards for Best New Ride of 2009. So this did hit the board, but not number one for that year. And lastly, we've talked about the history of the ride. We talked about its predecessor, Tales from the Okefenokee. There is a reference to the original Tales of the Okefenokee ride that can be found in the attraction. As you're going through the first show scene in the mansion, there is a picture on the wall of a pink bunny and a blue bunny in a watermelon patch. This is Mr. Rabbit, Mrs. Rabbit, and those adorable singing watermelons from Tales from the Okki Finoki. That is all I've got for us. I want to open the floor up to talk about our experiences and any ride tips we have about this attraction Now Matthew I think you've been going to Monster Mansion longer than I have. What have been kind of your experiences with this attraction over the years?
1: I've definitely been going a while, definitely one of the rides that when I would go with my family, it was a you know, must ride as a younger kid. It definitely scared me a little bit when I was younger, but it was one that the whole family could go on. I don't remember too many specifics of the ride. Even listening to your description a little while ago, definitely some things that piqued my memories, but it's also, my brain is also kind of picturing Splash Mountain now at the same time. So it's been a minute since I've been on it, but I do remember being scared, but always still really enjoying Monster Mansion when I made my way through when I was a kid. It's a fun ride, and it's a very unique ride,
0: not just at Six Flags over Georgia, but in, I think, among other theme parks as well. There's no other ride exactly like it out there. You know, being a Disney fan myself, knowing that so many iconic Disney Imagineers or former Disney Imagineers worked on this ride, I think there are moments in the attraction where you can kind of feel the little sprinkle of Disney type magic in the creativity and design. For this ride now am i saying that this is as awesome as most disney rides that i've been on with animatronics like no yeah it's it's hard yeah right but i think also you know with the context that this was built in nine months and that this creative team was able to put this all together in that short amount of time i would really strongly urge anybody that's going to six flags over georgia to make this a priority and not miss this attraction You're going to have roller coasters at this park. You're going to get your thrills. This is a ride that you can't ride anywhere else, and I really think it's worth the time to at least experience it once. 100%. As far as tips for this ride, really, I don't have that many for you. The biggest thing, this is a dark boat ride. This is a chance to sit down, relax, not be in a thrilling environment, and just take a little time to catch your breath and take in the show scenes and the music. This does tend to be a cooler ride since it's in a dark building and you're in a grotto of water. So this is a good way to cool off as well. In recent times I've been to the park, the queue for this attraction has been at most a five minute wait. I know that kind of in peak times of operating season, Matthew, I think we've waited as long as 20 or 30 minutes in a line for this ride before. But generally, a lot of times you can walk right on and even ride the ride a couple times. My biggest tip for you, If you can, try to get in a boat by yourselves or with people that don't look like they're going to be rambunctious. You can actually tell in one of our ride videos that's up on the channel, Amanda and I got in the front part of this boat, and we had a couple of teenagers that got in the back part of this boat, and uh, they were screaming the entire time. Gotta love it. We also got on the attraction earlier in the season, and there was some dude that kept touching our heads from the back seat. So if you can, I would get in a boat by yourself or just with your
1: crew. That's on you. You only brought one person. You got to always roll at least four people deep when you go into a theme park. Dude, I got to be rolling like little yachty. Bring my whole crew to Six Flags, <laughs> have a good old time.
0: Comes back. He always comes back. <laughs> always. Those are the only ride tips I have. We already talked about the photo at the beginning of the attraction. It's not hidden when the bird is going to flash and take your photo. That's it. That's when your photo is. Matthew, are there any other ride tips that you can think of for this attraction?
1: Nope. I think you nailed it. I know I definitely older days, the line could be pretty long. I definitely think it's gotten shorter as other rides have popped up. But I agree with you 100%. It's definitely a ride that if you're new to the park, that you should at least ride once. It's definitely not one that you have to ride every time but it's definitely one you should ride at least once to get that experience and is the perfect way to cool off on a hot southern Georgia day. That queue went faster than expected. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learned something new about this wonderful ride. As always, we'd love to hear your experiences with the attraction or any fun facts that you have. Feel free to join our discord server and join the conversation or shout at us on Twitter or Instagram at Q for two. That's Q-U-E-U-E underscore F-O-R underscore T-W-O. You can also drop a comment on our YouTube channel. All those links can be found in the episode description below. Now, go catch that ride and we'll see you in the next Q for Two. You're invited to a picnic, monster picnic, but humans are allowed today.